Lovers are better than people. Sven, don't you think that's true? Yeah, people will beat you and curse you and cheat you. Every one of them's bad, except you. Oh, thanks, buddy. But people smell better than reindeers. Sven, don't you think I'm right? That's once again true for all except you. You got me. Let's call it a night. Good night. Don't let the frost bite. Bite. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's this week on Broadway for Sunday, January 7th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fallspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you guys doing in this brutally cold weather? Okay. Uh, I truly believe that Disney is responsible for this. <laughs> the Thomas Schumacher said to God, God, I mm-hmm. need to promote Frozen, make it's everything a- frozen. And God said, yes, sir, Mr. <laughs> Schumacher. Of course, Mr. Schumacher. I, that's why it's so cold. It's a, it's a Frozen promo. That's excellent. Uh, yeah. That's good. I've seen uh, – I've seen uh, little memes on Facebook where uh, this woman dressed up as uh, Elsa or Anna from Frozen or getting taken away by the police in handcuffs and saying the cold weather's over. Yeah, really. I've also seen selfies of, uh, I think, several people taking their photo in front of the frozen marquee uh, in this freezing Uh, weather, including, I believe I saw one of Max von Essen doing exactly that the other day. (laughs) (laughs) We understand why he's in the neighborhood, of course, because he's across the street in Anastasia. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, uh, with that lead-in, perhaps we can introduce our guest. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Jonathan Groff is joining us by telephone. Broadway fans, of course, know Jonathan for uh, the musicals In My Life, Spring Awakening, and that little show Hamilton. Jonathan, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Also for including In My Life in my Broadway uh shows no one ever talks about in my life well let's talk well, about in my up, life yeah brings up a good point i mean uh given the fact that this was not a success uh did you say wow uh you know show business is harder than i think putting musicals together is harder than i think i better go become an accountant <laughs> it was well i was just excited to be on broadway i think i was 20 yeah i was 20 years old when i did that show and i was the dance captain and the swing for the ensemble. And I was just excited to have that job and walk through a stage door every day. But I guess the thing, one of the things that I learned that I took with me from that experience was because it was so panned and people came uh, to laugh at the show, the cast had to kind of form a protective bubble around themselves sure. um, in order to do <laughs> sure. the show eight times a week. Sure. And, and just learning how to do that and how to um, perform in spite of whatever kind of energy, negative or even positive, is, is happening outside of the theater was a good lesson. Okay, but a lot of people who were in their first Broadway show don't have perspective. I mean, Priscilla Lopez told me when she was in Breakfast at Tiffany, she said, I think this is the greatest show. Did you say to yourself, this stinks? Or did you say, "Uh, wow, what a great show we have? I had no idea. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. It was so strange. And I think even people that came to see the show, it was was so... um, they had no idea either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was I, it was uh, there was a there was an angel coming from heaven and God sang a Dr Pepper jingle. He was a jingle <laughs> writer. I mean, it was just such a it was such a trippy like acid dream. I don't that, recall. I, you know, maybe it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. I don't recall. Were you in the show every night, or were you just just swinging? I was just swinging. So you, uh, how many times? It wasn't with us very long, obviously. How many times would you say you went on? 
I would say I went on in my, I never went on for the two lead characters that I understudied, but I went on in the ensemble, I would say maybe a dozen times. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, Now, on the other hand, in the Hamilton show, by that point, you know, you're a veteran. Did you say to yourself very early on, oh, my God, this is going to be immense? Yeah. I don't think it had any it, it, uh, anyone could see that it, uh, even if you were in the theater or if you were from, you know, Montana or it didn't matter. You could, you could see Hamilton off Broadway and know that it was going to be immense. It mm-hmm. just had that it just had that energy about it for sure. Yeah. In fact, given the fact that you did not have a big part in the show, did you want to be a part of it simply because you knew it was going to be that successful? Well, I I so enjoyed doing the part in the show, and I had replaced Brian Darcy James. He's the one that opened the show off Broadway, and he had to leave the show a week after opening. And so in my mind, and I was shooting this show on HBO called Looking, and we had just, our second season had just come out. And so in my mind, I was coming in to fill in for Brian for, you know, the two months of the off-Broadway run. And then I just always assumed that Brian would do it on Broadway. And then the mm-hmm. show got, cause the show came in really soon. It came in over the summer. I think it jumped right from off Broadway to Broadway like, very quickly. And it, that all that timing was unclear at, in that moment when the, when I was taking over the part and then it just, it just kind of, it just kind of happened. But yeah, I mean, being in that show and being able to just hear it every night, uh, was a reason to say yes to doing it. So let me ask you something about uh, back in, in my life. Um, I, I got to see it because a friend of mine, Kilty Reedy, was in the ensemble. And uh, Yes, I love Kilty. We shared a dressing room. So mm-hmm. I think uh, I just worked with Kilty right before uh, in my life. And, uh, and so uh, you, you go to see this thing and, uh, and you guys close right before Christmas. Is, is that an especially hard time to get through or, or did you, uh, rebound to do something immediately afterwards? Well, I remember we were all considering the reviews and how few people were in the audience every night. We were surprised that we even ran past the weekend that we opened. So going all the way to the middle of December, having opened in the end of October felt like a gift. (laughs) Um, And it was kind of. Um, And then I was actually auditioning. Then I auditioned for Spring Awakening. I mean, we closed in the middle of December, beginning of December. And then December was the month of final callbacks for Spring Awakening. And I thought Uh I got that right before Christmas. Yeah. Ah. That's quite a gift. That was a life changer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah right. totally. I remember I remember Michael Mayer called me over. I found out I got the part right before Christmas, and then I was home for the holidays, and Michael Mayer, I got this 917 number come up on my Pennsylvania cell phone, and uh, the, they left a message, and it was, it was Michael Mayer, and I was it's saying, you know, my name's Michael. I'm the director. We met at the audition. I'm so excited to work with you. I think it's going to be great. And I was freaking out because he had directed Thoroughly Modern Millie, which I had seen six times. Ah. And I was saying to my parents, I can't believe Michael Mayer just left me a voicemail on my phone over the holiday season. Isn't that wonderful? All right. So did you know early on, oh, wow, this is really going to be terrific. It's going to speak to the young people. It's going to be a big uh, hit. I was, I mean, I always knew the cat, you know, everyone always knew that it was a special piece of material, but it was sort of the opposite experience of Hamilton where every, every step of the way was a complete surprise. Uh, we, Michael even told us when we were off Broadway, there's no, when we were in tech and there was these whispers of the show angling to move to Broadway, he was saying, uh, it's impossible. This is not a Broadway show. This is never uh-huh. to Broadway. He kept. He very much kept us in our place. I think he didn't want us to get to think ahead of the moment, and it worked. We were all very, we were very just kind of nose to the grindstone, one step at a time. Everything felt like a surprise. Even on Tony Night, uh, winning all those awards was we were shocked. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's well, really surprising. Uh, 
Let's flash forward to uh, what you're doing in a couple of weeks up at the 92nd Street Y. You have the uh, Lyrics and Lyricists series where you are doing the Bobby Darren story. So how did this come to be? And uh, tell us a little bit, a, a bit about your connection to Bobby Darren. I had done Lyrics and Lyricists a couple of years ago, a Rogers and Hammerstein one with uh, Ted Chapin. Uh, who runs the Rogers and Hammerstein Foundation and does a million other things. And we became friends through that. And now he's running the lyrics and lyricists at the 92nd Street Y. And so he was programming this first season. And he'd seen a musical in Australia called Dream Lover, which is a Bobby Darren musical, and came away from it going, wow, I didn't realize that Bobby Darren wrote so many songs. He wrote over 150 songs. Uh, including Splish Splash and Dream Lover, two of his biggest hits. And so he thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a night of lyrics and lyricists with a pop star like that? Um, And so we went to go see Natasha Pierre together and had dinner afterwards. And he said, you know, think about doing the Bobby Darren story at Lyrics and Lyricists. Does that interest you? And I went home and YouTubed clips of Bobby Darren online, which of which there are hundreds of amazing mm. clips and was just introduced to his talent and the variety of style that he performed and sang and wrote in uh, from the fifties and sixties and early seventies, and then kind of blown away by the, the shocking story of his life. And so immediately that uh, emailed Ted that night, actually late into the night as I was YouTubing and said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> So uh, one of the things, of course, is that he learned at an early age that he was uh, not long for this world, right? Yes. He had rheumatic fever. He grew up poor and in New York and had rheumatic fever um, four times before he was 14, uh, which left him with this ruined heart. The, the doctors, when he was younger and he had the illness for the first time, said he wouldn't live past like it was like, I think it was, he wouldn't live past 15 and then it was, he wouldn't live past 21. And then it was, he wouldn't live past 30. Uh, he died young at 37, but he, he by a long shot outlived the doctor's predictions, but always suffered from, always had these heart problems his whole life. And, Mm. uh, even often when he was performing, they had oxygen tanks for him, uh, in the wings that he would, that he would use between setups. And I remember uh, living through that, and I remember no secret was made of it. Um, and I always thought yeah. that was that was admirable that they were honest about it, and it, it really gave an added edge to all of his performances. Just you know, worrying about him and knowing that he was not that well. And yeah, you would totally. never know it. You would never know it when he was entertaining, though. No, no. He really found the resources to be able to do it. So um, <clears throat> now, of course, um, his wife um, became very famous through the song In Greece. Was that the first time you ever heard of Sandra D through Greece? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, I guess I guess I guess that is the first time I'd ever heard of Sandra D. <laughs> You're totally right. And there's a lot of, uh, of course, his most famous song is a musical theater song, Mac the Knife. And I'm sure you found, Jonathan, his album called In a Broadway Bag. Yes, yes. Uh, It does not have uh, on it his famous recording of Hello, Dolly, which he does very much in the style of Mac the Knife. But it's got, um, gosh, it's got Mame, I Believe in You, It's Today, Everybody Has the Right to Be Wrong, Feeling Good, which turned up on so many albums in those days. Um, So many commercials. (laughs) Yeah, that too, as we've mentioned. Don't Rain on My Parade, um, Try to Remember, Once Upon a Time. uh, uh, that's, That's an album that... I think everyone should have every musical theater fan. If if you don't already have to hear what Bobby Darren does with those songs, and yet it's I imagine incredible. Do, yeah, I imagine you're going to do uh, few to none of those though, because um, I imagine that you're going to do the the more pop hits that we um, that put them on the charts. Um, that's yeah, well, there we definitely we had a list of four songs that we had to do. We had to do. Uh, Splish Splash, Dream Lover, Max the Knife, and Beyond the Sea. Uh-huh. And then and then outside of those four, you know, it was kind of fair game. And that was the fun of it, was, was trying to pick the songs and figure out 
which ones best reflected the story of his life. And it's, it's so interesting how this, cause he started in rock and roll with Splish Splash and then he went legit uh, with his album. That's all that's the, you know, Max and Ice was on there because he, he really wanted, he was started as a rock and roller, but he really wanted to be known as a legitimate pop star like Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, and he was a decade after them. So that's why he recorded all those Broadway tunes. And I mean, if you go on Apple Music or Spotify and you look up Bobby Darren, it's insane how many albums he did. He just, <laughs> when he was doing it, you know, I think he recorded all the time. Oftentimes when he was doing, you know, an act in Vegas or whatever, he would just record. But it's, I mean, it is a duets album with Johnny Mercer, mm-hmm. where it's just duets with the two of them. It's, it, the list goes on and on and on. And then on YouTube, he's, duetting with every female under the sun he's duetting with stevie wonder he's duetting with judy garland i mean it just is the amount of work is staggering especially considering that he died at 37 he really wanted to fit it all in before he died well also of course then came the change of image uh when he wanted to do uh folky um relevant tunes right are you dealing exactly. with that at all? You, you're dealing yeah, with definitely. that part of his life mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So, Jonathan, so he, yeah, he, yeah, sorry. Uh, no, no. I just uh, wanted to kind of uh, flesh out what we're going to see on stage on January 20th. Uh, you, it, uh, from what I'm reading here, it's like a mini Broadway production. You have Alex Timbers directing. You have Andy Einhorn, the music director, Andrew Resnick, the music director, David Patu, George Salazar, Elena Shadow, Stephanie Styles with you as well, as well as a six-piece, six-piece orchestra. I mean, you have uh, Chase Brock staging it. You have Dan Scully doing projections. I mean, this is a mini Broadway production for just uh, two days or three days. Well, it's, it's, it's a lecture. I mean, the, the lyrics and lyricists is, is, you know, focusing on the, the music that was written by any particular uh, composer or lyricist and trying to kind of contextualize what they wrote by telling the story of their life as well. So we're not playing characters in Bobby Darren's life where, you know, it's Bobby Darren was born in 1930. So, you know, so it's, it's part lecture and part musical performance with an emphasis on the musical performance. I think we're doing something like 23 or 24 songs at this point. Uh, so it's, 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 like a, it's like a big uh, concert of music with tidbits about his life, you know, stuck into it. Um, that we, we, and we, you know, it's sort of just direct address to the, to the audience. Usually there's a, usually they have a kind of moderator or a speaker at these things, but we brought on Alex to kind of direct it. And he thought it would be fun to just have other performers speaking and singing. And so it's been, it's really been fun uh, seeing it all come together. And the music, like you said, is so that there's so many different genres. So there's rock and roll and, and then there's the standards and then there's, yeah, that folk, folk music. If I were a carpenter and all the stuff he sang later in life. So it's a very, eclectic um, uh, audio experience. By the way, we can really tell that you have done your homework. (laughs) (laughs) You can really cite chapter and verse on this. So that's very impressive. Yeah, I got really, once I started, it's Ted and, and Alex and Andrew and Andy and, and I all agreed. It's it one. He's his life is so interesting that, the minute you start digging, even even just musically, you know, I've been listening to the music over and over again and trying to match a lot of his phrasing and trying to learn his rhythms. And it's it's he's just an endlessly interesting sort of uh, uh, mysterious and kind of unpinned downable person. We, we there's this book called Dream Lovers that Dad Darren, his son, wrote uh, about the marriage of his parents and, and their lives uh, separately and together. And that book alone is just like so complicated. <laughs> his life was very complicated. Uh, and, and he, and Dodd interviews everybody in his life, people that he worked with, family members, and everybody's got a different kind of take um, on Bobby Darren. And so we're trying to include lots of different colors, um, into the, into the night. There's so many interesting little, uh, stories about him. We couldn't even fit them all in. 
I imagine your research included the 1962 remake of State Fair, Rogers and Hammerstein's State Fair, which I, is yes, <laughs> yeah, which is interesting for several reasons. He, uh, Bobby, sings a little of "It's a Grand Night for Singing" as uh, part of an ensemble number, but then there's a new song with music and lyrics by Richard Rogers that I really like called "This I Isn't Heaven." I do this too. This isn't heaven. I agree. I don't know if you're wow. including that particular song, but it's uh, it's quite uh, quite good for you know for music and lyrics by Rogers. I feel like I shouldn't say. I want I want people to. Yes, be you surprised. shouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, uh, you, everybody knows that uh, you've been a part of this enormous uh, hit Hamilton, and uh, also other people might know that you are part of this enormous hit called Frozen. I, I think maybe you are the key to success for these projects. Uh, you know, uh, you may, you're straddling the line between Hollywood and New York uh, really well. We, we're very happy we don't lose you to the to the left coast. Uh, how do you <laughs> how do you manage that? Um, and does this disappoint your agents and managers, or do you push back and say, "No, I want to do art," you know, or? Yeah, well, I've, I'm obsessed with theater. I always have been. I still am. I think I saw three shows last week um, in New York. I, it's just, it just is a fact. It's just my. It's not even something I have to try and cultivate. It's just uh, a part of who I am, uh, and it doesn't disappoint any of any anyone in that part of my life because. They just that that's they go go in knowing that you know it's uh-huh. just such an essential part of who I am, and I'm just obsessed with it. I, I'm just yeah, it's just my great passion. So it's something that I'm committed to staying a part of and seeing. I saw the play The Wolves for the third time oh. on Thursday. <laughs> Did you guys see that play? The oh, sure. girl soccer. Sure, terrific. Oh my gosh, it was so amazing. Uh but anyway, yeah, so I just it's it's uh it's easy for me to have it be a part of my life because it's just my it's my great obsession. As anyone that's obsessed with theater, whether you work in it, I think or not, it's uh if you're you know, if you're a theater nerd, you're a theater nerd. We like we recognize each other. But because I can, it... I can I, when I was with, I did this concert with Sutton Foster. Yes. Uh, at Lincoln Center a couple of weeks ago, who you know I'm I'm obsessed with, and I have a picture with at the stage <laughs> door or whatever. And I was referencing, so we, we and we did this kind of skit before we duetted. And when we were writing the skit, the uh, the director said, you know, okay, Jonathan, so I know you're a fan of Sutton, but if you you know just elaborate on some of the things. And I, you know, I appeared like an insane person because I went into all the stories and I was referencing, you know, the, the, the YouTube video of her singing Gimme Gimme on Regis and Kelly as opposed to the one on the Rosie O'Donnell show. <laughs> and she was like, what? But I'm just a deep nerd in that way. But because because it's such a another big hit, we really should not fail to mention that that Jonathan lately has been busy as one of the two leads of the Netflix series Mindhunter yeah. with Holt McCallany, uh, in which the two of them play special agents in the FBI's behavioral science unit. And I have only seen a little bit of it, but I understand that uh, it's quite popular and the reaction has been really very very positive across the board yeah it's been great it's been uh, a really good experience we go back in a couple of months to start shooting the second season in pittsburgh my favorite jonathan groff story occurs um at the public theater i told this uh, when i was introducing him at the theater world awards uh, a couple of years ago that uh, i saw him in the lobby with olympia dukakis and they were talking and she was talking to him and i am telling you the concentration i saw on his face when she was talking to him really made me say this guy is really serious i mean he's i have <laughs> I, I have seen younger people with older people and their eyes are half glazed and closed and saying, when will this be over and not jonathan gruff he was listening so intensely Gently that and is so funny. I remember that. I, I, it's funny you say that, particularly about her, because I used to have the impulse. I was obsessed with her and getting the chance to work with her, and I would have the impulse when we were in rehearsal, 
especially in the early weeks when you don't know each other in the cast and everyone's a little vulnerable and, and it's a little awkward, but I would force myself to not check my phone on a break, but go over to Olympia and talk to her. Mm-hmm. I would think, okay, it's Olympia Dukakis. How often? And I convinced her to give me a copy of her book, which is called "Ask Me Again Tomorrow." And tomorrow, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and uh, and my friend Susie Porfar and I, we would just always sit and ask. She had such incredible stories. But also a thing that blew me my mind about Olympia, which maybe I was trying that on. Uh, was that she, she, I think she was 77 when I worked with her and we would be walking down the street, going to lunch and she would notice a poster on the bottom of a phone pole for a concert and bend and sort of bend over and go, Oh, I got to see that. And mm-hmm. I just thought, wow, you're, yeah, that's funny. you're <laughs> you know, she was, yeah. just, she was very open yeah. and, and receptive and she's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Jonathan, I, I really want to thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and uh, chatting with us. Uh, remind our, our listeners that January 20th through the 22nd at the 92nd Street Y, the Lyrics and Lyricists series will have the Bobby Darren story in the key of Groff. <laughs> I thought it was a very clever We actually marketing. sing in the same key. How weird is that? Oh, great. I'll, I'll, it's pretty much... I think it's actually every single song is in the key wow. that he sang it in, which was a, which was a, which was like a fun surprise as we we're going through the music. <laughs> um, Jonathan does not participate in social media, so uh, all those uh, all those Twitter and Instagram and Facebook things and things like that are posted by other people, including that Lin Manuel Miranda who keeps posting about Jonathan Groff all the time. <laughs> Have you gotten a restraining order against him? <laughs> I see he the, he kissed he kissed you against your will, you know. And oh, I, so against my will. I know. Thank you. <laughs> I, should, I should get a restraining order. You should. No, he's going to try. He's, he has to get a restraining order against me. It's so the other way around. <laughs> well, I have to tell you that uh, you and your videos with uh, Lynn have provided my wife and children so much happiness. They watch them over Aww. and over. It's my daughter's birthday, and she said to say hello to Jonathan Groff for her. Uh, Oh, my God. Tell her I said happy birthday. Absolutely. (laughs) So, Jonathan, thank you so much for getting up on Sunday morning and chatting with us. And uh, we will get up to um, the Kaufman Concert Hall and review your show when when it comes around. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, amazing. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Bye, Bye, Bye. John. All right. Bye. They say the price of my war is not a price that they're willing to pay. Insane You cheat with the French Now I'm fighting with France And with Spain I'm so blue I thought that we made An arrangement When you went away You were mine to subdue Well even Despite our estrangement I've got a small Query for you Okay, so in the review section, Michael, you got over to 54 Below, and uh, you saw Anne Morrison perform. So tell us, how was Anne? Anne was great. She is, as many of our listeners know, uh, was one of the stars of the original Broadway production of Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, playing Mary Flynn. Um, And I guess it's fair to say that and is a little more than a little bit back in the public eye lately uh, through the documentary film Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened that Lonnie Price, one of the other stars of the show, made about about it. And I, I'm sure many of our listeners have already seen it. If not, you really should catch up on it. It's one of the best films of its kind and uh, with amazing footage and recordings and, and new interviews of uh, Sondheim, Hal Prince, and, and uh, everyone else involved, and focusing on the afterlives of several of the stars, including Anne, who I, I've always loved from the moment I first heard that original cast recording. Her uh, theater career in New York uh, did not go very far, largely or or solely because of the failure of the original failure of 
Merrily We Roll Along. It has since become one of Sondheim's most popular shows, and that's a, a fascinating subject in itself. But um, she's lived in Florida for some years, and she's remained very active. She also did come back uh, briefly in love music. She was the uh, understudy or uh, standby, I suppose, for Donna Murphy in that. And I, she went on, let's see, I'm told at least once, maybe twice, I'm not sure uh, exactly. I did not see her in it, unfortunately. But she still um, is has great presence on stage and her voice I would say is basically a hundred percent intact from what you hear on that long ago original cast recording of Merrily We Roll Along. She did a very um very quirky, very personal act at Feinstein's 54 Below on Wednesday, January 3rd at 7 p.m. It was called My Furniture Set, and it's got it had a lot of songs having to do with uh, with with actual furniture, uh, beds, chairs, sofas, the theme of rooms being furnished or unfurnished, uh, and you know as reflections of what's going on in people's lives. Uh, let me just read the the song list or at least most of it um one of the highlights was a song which i guess has different versions of its title but here it is called if i can't sell it i'm going to sit down on it mm-hmm. which is a really incredibly funny and clever double entendre song made famous by ruth brown uh and a song by her in among other places in black and blue on broadway um that that was really a highlight um we have uh Feels Like Home, the John Bacchino song, uh, Good Old Desk by Harry Nilsson, Black Coffee, Sofa So Good. Uh, she sang Go to Sleep from the film version of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, which you don't hear very often. That was interesting. Um, another rather obscure item, Here in My Bed from Songs from an Unmade Bed, that musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's see. uh Our House, Graham Nash. Um, There was no Sondheim in the show, but there was a reference to him by name, so that was kind of neat. And, oh, gosh, she sang uh, that beautiful song about Van Gogh, Vincent, that Don McLean song, so beautiful. Uh, And let's see, The Room is Filled with You, Harvey Schmidt and Tom Jones, another obscurity i would say and so it really was a wonderful evening her personality came through and it's always nice to hear uh performers who've been around a while and away for a while uh when when they come back you always are a little trepidatious about what you know what condition they're going to be in especially their voices but i'm not kidding you she sounded basically the same as she did in that amazing cast album of Merrily. So if you ever, if she comes by your way in anything, uh, do not hesitate to go see Anne, and to go see and hear Anne Morrison. Well, let me also say that um, I have seen her play the role of Daisy Gamble, and for that matter, Melinda Wells, in On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, out at Music Theater of Wichita, one of our most valuable regional theaters that deserves a Tony. It's amazing what they do out there. But she was terrific in it, and of course, it's not an easy role. Uh, it's not easy roles. Um, so she was really, really impressive. And while I didn't get to see her do Sunset Boulevard out there, indeed, she did it there as well. So that was pretty impressive. Um, wow. I have yeah, yeah, um, because um, everybody I know who saw it said she really was up to the task, and that's uh, that's pretty amazing because it's not an easy role, needless to say, and uh, I was impressed that she um, would want to do it. Um, yes, she does have quite a life in Florida, as the documentary does show, and, um, and I know she's also an excellent mother because I've seen her with her son, Huck, and um, just a terrific lady, and it's funny, when I think of back on Merrily, I was there on closing night, and one of the images I certainly have that I will, uh, that sticks in my mind is um, in Old Friends, you know the part where they start squabbling, well, what's the point of demands you can't meet, and then they all want to um, get to be friends again as best they can, and at the moment when they go back into hate, Old Friends, mm. she had such decisive gesture, putting out her arms, you know, as if to keep the two boys apart. <clears throat> it was really such an impressive moment, and it's one that's always stayed with me. Um, so, But I also say, because you reminded me of it, Michael, when you mentioned Ruth Brown, 
Do you remember her Tony acceptance speech for Black and Blue? I will never forget it when she said, it has taken me 42 years to climb those eight steps <laughs> to the stage to get her one. That's a great line. She, I, I asked her about it once, and she said, you know, I was so pleased that, um, of all people, Angela Lansbury made a beeline to me after the sh- um, as soon as I um, got off and said, that is one of the most terrific speeches I have ever heard. So she uh, she was very pleased that Angela Lansbury acknowledged her. So since you mentioned Ruth Brown, that's worth mentioning too, I think. I do remember that speech, and thank you for bringing it up. Um, Anne Morrison's son, Huck, was in the audience for her okay. show. But then also, I I'm, unfortunately, I missed it. The, the next show that evening at Feinstein's 54 Below was a show featuring the children of several of the original cast members of Merrily We Roll Along, including Huck. Uh, so I yeah, really, I, I'm sorry I couldn't make that, that. That must have been amazing, especially seeing it in the context of Anne just having done her show there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you both got a chance to uh, return to 54 Below just two days later to see Up in the Cheap Seats with Ron Fassler and Friends, which we previewed last week on the show. So, Peter, why don't you start us off with Ron Fassler's show? Well, uh, Up in the Cheap Seats is uh, a memoir about uh, Ron Fassler's experiences uh, during his early teen years when he used to come into the city most every Saturday to see uh, a hit show or a flop show. Uh, And um, he saved money from his paper route to do it and uh, really enjoyed himself for a long time. Uh, This goes from late 67 to early 73. So uh, he did see uh, hits and bombs and he also reviewed them. Um, in, not, of course, for a publication, but just in a little, um, you know, like perhaps one of those little notebooks with the black and white matted cover. Um, yeah, so and he shared a few of them, um, in, including the one about Follies, where he said Sondheim wrote some good songs, you know, um, so uh, which I'm sure is one of Stephen Sondheim's greatest compliments that he wrote some <laughs> good songs in Follies. So um, I, I think they even use that um, on the big sign over the winter garden, you know, um, some good songs, Fassler composition books. So anyway, um, <laughs> Ron decided to put together a show, uh, dealing with most of the, um, I don't mean most of the songs, of course, but what I mean is, uh, most of the songs that he chose, uh, had to do with that period in time, which one didn't the one that he introduced the show once upon a time comes from all American, but you did not hear the Lee Adams lyric. What happened was that he completely rewrote the lyrics, um, to, uh, refer to his life once upon a time when he used to do that. What was really interesting to me was that he followed it by having Kevin Chamberlain, um, the original um, Horton and Susical singing Think How It's Going to Be from Applause. And I thought, oh, he's going to tell the story about um, about the writing of that song. And he didn't. So I don't know if Ron knows this, but there's an interesting story attached to that song that involves Once Upon a Time from All-American. Because um, when they were in Baltimore trying out, um, Ron Field, the director, said to Charles Strauss, I don't like the song that Len Cariou has to introduce himself in the show when he's singing to Margot Channing. It's a musical of All About Eve. Um, uh, because it's too up-tempo. It was called It Was Always You. And it's a very nice song, and you can find it on a Lost in Boston album. Very pleasant song. But he said, I think we need more emotion. I think we need a ballad. And Charles Strauss says, well, it's truth to tell. Ballads are not my strong suit. The only good ballad I've ever written is (laughs) Once Upon a Time. And um, Ron Field said to him, well, good, then just write it backwards, and uh, that'll be fine. And in fact, um, (laughs) think how it's going to be. Uh, if you think about it, is a variation on Once Upon a Time. <laughs> it's not quite backwards, but he did sort of take that advice and uh, let it inspire him to write the song, to write a more tender song for um, for uh, uh, Len Carrier's character to sing to Margot Channing. And uh, it, it, while it does have emotion, it also has strength to it, too, because he's trying to t- tell her, uh, as the lyric goes, I don't want to go, but planes come back, you know. I mean, he's going out to Hollywood to uh, do a picture out there, and she's going to miss him because they're a couple and uh, so uh, it has both strength and it does have sentiment as well so it's really a very good song and Kevin certainly did it um, very well Um, and you know I have to say um, when Michael Bernardi, son of Herschel Bernardi um, did a song from Zorba 
And Braun challenged us, and I haven't been able to rebut him. He said, I think this is the first time that, uh, ironically enough, that's the name of the song, too, that um, a son ever played his father's role because um, Herschel Bernani, of course, was Tevye for a number of years. Sheldon Harnick thinks he was the best of them all. And Michael Bernardi played it uh, in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts, but then also was I an thought of one. Oh, did you? I didn't. Go ahead. Tell me what. Um Rex Harrison and his son Noel. That's right. Good for you. That's right. Henry that's Higgins. Exactly. Although that's I right. think I think Ron may have said on Broadway. On Broadway, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, so that would still yeah, yeah that wouldn't count. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, but you're right. Noel Harrison did do uh, Henry Higgins. Anyway, so um, Michael Bernardi did go on as uh, Tevye in the Danny Burstein production of uh, Fiddler. So, um, but I'll tell you, I, somehow I was thinking of the band's visit while I heard this song, because in the song. Uh, Zorba, who's Greek, obviously, uh, if you know the movie Zorba the Greek, uh, <laughs> sings, uh, sings about a guy he meets. I could tell he was a Turk, but I liked him anyway. And that's the same message delivered eight times a week at the band's visit, that two countries' worth of citizens can hate each other. But when people meet on a one-on-one -on -one basis, they find they have so much in common. It's a phenomenon. So, um, And, of course uh, – Speaking of Fiddler, Ron himself did When Messiah Comes, and I thought he did it magnificently. Um, I'm not going to say uh, who was supposed to do it, but the person who was supposed to do it has recorded it, and I don't think he does it very well because I think the tempo's too fast. But Ron did it, I think, to perfection, so I, I like that quite a bit. So um, I'm going to stop now because it's not fair for me to go to each and every number, which would leave Michael with far less to say. So, uh, Michael, why don't you take over and tell us? about more of the evening oh but please jump in yeah, sure, <laughs> whenever you <sure>. are <laughs> try and stop me go ahead <laughs> uh well debbie gravitt was one of the guests and offered a phenomenal version of if he walked into my life from mame but another of the guests were was debbie gravitt's son sam who is just beginning to make himself for himself what i think is going to be a spectacular career in musical theater and he started with before the parade passes by from hello dolly and then uh followed it up with a duet of um oh i'm sorry uh well uh, that was followed by knowing when to leave from the same show performed by alexandra fassler barris who uh, it, it was Ron's niece, is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ron's niece. And then uh, Sam and Alexandra did I'll Never Fall in Love Again from Promises, Promises, with starting out with Sam playing on the guitar. And then the pianist came in as well. Um, uh, after that was the placement of If He Walked Into My Life by Debbie Gravett. Uh, then Ron was supposed to do The Father of the Bride from I Do, I Do, but it was starting to... Uh, the show is starting to run late with all of his fabulous stories, plus all of these great performances. Um, so he skipped it, and we went uh, right to Stephen Bagardis doing Someone is Waiting from Company. And, you know, I I didn't get to talk to Stephen afterwards, but I wanted to ask him if he's ever done all of Company, because mm -hmm. that would have been a great part for him mm -hmm. back in the mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. I think probably it was a, a question of the timing just being wrong, because he was really too young to do it when the show was originally out and touring and, you know, when productions were being done in the wake of the original and, uh, well, you know, but he could have done that roundabout, um, mm -hmm. revival. And for, all we, and for all we know, we auditioned for it. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, he, I mean, I, to be honest, he would have sung it better than Boyd Gaines. So anyway, um, I'll, maybe I'll ask him that someday. Uh, then there's, then there came, <laughs> uh, something that Peter, I'm going to have to ask you to comment on, uh, all right. Quartet, a male quartet of a song called Foresight from Gantry, the musical version of Elmer Gantry, uh, performed by Justin Barrett, Michael Bernardi, Michael Kaitsi, and Matt Kurzenich. Uh, and so, yeah, what did you think of that? Uh, Ron mentioned, he said, I'm not going to tell you how I got the music. <laughs> uh, I don't know how 
difficult that was for him to do that, but I'm sure there's a great story there that he didn't he didn't have time to or didn't want to tell. Um, my guess would have been uh, that he simply called up Michael Levine, uh, who is the sheet music guru in this city, uh, because there's very little that Michael doesn't have. So that's my guess. Uh, by the way, friends, if you need sheet music, Michael Levine, L-A-V-I-N-E, um, he will uh, photocopy what he has if you need a song. So it, no matter how obscure it is, try Michael and I think you're going to uh, do very well by him. But um, uh, I did not see Gantry because I had tickets literally for the second performance. Hmm. And that was too late. Uh, Gantry opened and closed on the same night and also turned out to be the last show ever to play the George Abbott Theater, which no longer exists. It was on 54th Street for a while. It was called the 54th Street Theater. And um, it usually was the place where shows went to die after they um, ran a while. Bye Bye Birdie went there. Do Re Mi went there um so it rarely had a hit because it was off the beaten track and you might say well wait a minute i mean the studio 54 is on 54th street yeah but it that's a little more in the theater district because this was um between sixth and seventh avenue it was a problem but anyway um so uh i can't say i missed uh, much of anything if this song was um any example i mm. thought it was very pleasant mm. it was a nice song if yeah. i've heard ten thousand or so songs in broadway music I'd rank it 5,036, you know, but don't forget Ron saw the show. And as a result, you know, it, it might've been dynamite there. And this is nothing against the four guys who did it. <clears throat> In fact, they even had a little musical staging. That was a lot of fun, but um, <clears throat> nobody would, I, I don't think anybody would come out of there and say, gee, with a song like that, how could Gantry not have been a hit? You know? So, um, so there was that um, in terms of uh, I'll never fall in love again. Ron brought up an interesting point. Uh, the fact that, it was written out of town. In fact, when I saw Promises, Promises in Boston, it wasn't in yet. And I remember very vividly, I remember exactly where I was. I was at a friend's house um, and uh, we were actually painting an apartment. The album had just come out and I was listening to um, the, the cast album I had just bought. And it came to that point with I'll Never Fall in Love Again. This is the first time I'm hearing it. And I thought, gee, what a good song. you know. And <laughs> I didn't know it was going to turn out to be the mammoth hit from that show. But um, what Ron brought up is the fact that when David Merrick said to them, you need another song there, um, Burt Backrack had pneumonia at the time. And uh, there's a possibility that the reason pneumonia became part of the lyric had to do with the fact that Burt Backrack had it. So that was uh, kind of fun. About Debbie Gravett, I, I have to bring this up um, because I remember talking to Cy Fewer once, and um, he was talking about Gwen Verdon stopping the show uh, when she did Can Can. And the way he looked when he said to me, and I'm telling you, people talk about stopping the show, but this really was stopping the show. And the look on his face was so sincere as if to say, I am telling you the unvarnished truth. The point is that she had to, uh, she was already in her dressing room and the mm. people were still applauding and they brought her back. It's a very famous story. Well, let me tell you, as somebody who was at the Helen Hayes Theater, the old Helen Hayes Theater, on November 10th, 1980, for the first preview of Perfectly Frank, a review of Frank Lesser songs, not to be confused with Frankly Frank, was a, was a very different review. Um, Debbie Shapiro did a, a Lesser song called Junk Man, left the stage and we just would not stop applauding and she had to come back and take a bow. And I will never forget that. I I can still see it uh, right now, all these years later. So uh, she is the only person I have ever seen stop the show in the real sense of the word. Because most people mean stop the show means that people applauded for a long mm. time. No, mm. um, this is really the, the the thing. So I have the fondest memories of uh, Debbie Shapiro. She was then. Uh, for right. a while, she was Debbie Shapiro uh, Gravit. And um, also, I have to say, she was very good in a musical that never made it to town called Spotlight, uh, which tried out in Washington. I didn't see it there. They actually did a gypsy run through at the uh, Palace Theater where I saw it. And she was really marvelous. And she was also marvelous in a Broadway Grand uh, playing Gypsy Rose Lee. So um, a terrific performer, just and a wonderful lady, by the way. And uh, it's funny because if I wa uh, if he walked into my life as a song in which a mother character, I mean, she's an aunt, obviously, uh, talks about the fact that I make the right decisions. Well, considering the way Sam turned out, <laughs> I think she must have been a wonderful mother, too, when uh, through the years because he really is a very winning and, um, and handsome uh, performer who I think is really going to have a good career. Yes, and she did dedicate the song to him. That was lovely. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, she's the greatest, Debbie Gravett. She really is. Um, I, we, I skipped over mentioning, and I certainly don't want to, Elmore James did a gorgeous... Oh. 
Yeah. Rendition of Lost in the Stars from the show of the same title, Court Weil and Maxwell Anderson. Um, and then to move back uh, into the chronological order we were going, uh, uh, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Anita Gillette. Absolutely. Who replaced um, on Broadway in the, the role of Sally Bowles in the original production of Cabaret sang, uh, started with Don't Tell Mama from that show and gave, I, I swear to God, what I would say was the definitive version of uh, that song, or at least the the part of it that she did. And then she segued into the title song. And, you know, Anita has, I've seen her m many times in recent years performing uh, in plays and then also cl uh, in clubs. She does a fabulous club act with Penny Fuller. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, but I don't know if I specifically remember her doing either or both of those. Uh, and if, and if she did, I would say that, uh, it, it, for whatever reason, it didn't make quite the effect that it did on me at this at Ron Fassler's show. She, first of all, looked phenomenal, and she is another one who who has retained, I, I don't know, at least ninety nine percent of her voice. It would seem uh, she just sounded phenomenal, and the acting and the British accent, and as she was giving a real performance up there, and and that I think basically would have stopped the show if it didn't come near, you know at the end anyway and if they, <laughs> and, if they and if they weren't running long and and uh, Ron had made the point that he was already cutting you know he had to cut one number so so they wouldn't run overtime um and then the final number was a beautiful uh, rendition by Ron himself of the best night of my life from applause which he said he felt was um extremely appropriate on the in the circumstances because it was a wonderful wonderful uh evening at Fine Science 54 Below in commemoration of his really great book, Up in the Cheap Seats. With, um, I, 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 it's a book that everyone has to read. Oh, and, and one last thing. He, um, Ron is a fountain of knowledge. As, you know, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. he's right up there with the best of them. But he, um, it sounded, uh, Peter, to me, uh, from the way he introduced it, that he maybe is not aware that Once Upon a Time was apparently a trunk song, which uh, I had always thought that it might be and could not get a, a solid answer until we had Lee Adams on our podcast one day. And he admitted that it was written by he and Charles Strauss for another project, which I'm sorry, I cannot remember the title at the moment. Um, so trunk song or not, it's just gorgeous. We, we mentioned that song earlier, once upon a time as having been recorded by Bobby Darren. Um, Many people recorded it. Uh, Ron mentioned it as, as the interesting story that it um, uh, it was announced uh, that Tony Bennett was going to be recording the song, and it was was to be the A side of a forty five RPM record that in which <laughs> existed in those days. Um, uh, and so Strauss and Adams were extremely excited. Then it turned out that the song on what was originally intended was the, on, as the B-side was I Left My Heart in San Francisco. So basically A became B, but as Ron put it, Strauss and Adams didn't care because they still got just as much money for it. Um <laughs> The um, Once Upon a Time came from a review called What's the Rush that played in Long Island. I don't know if it played anywhere else, but uh, I do know that much about it. Um, the uh, the other thing I want to mention about Nita Gillette, who I refer to as the first good Sally Bowles on Broadway, which is a very controversial remark because a lot of people like Jill Hoth in the part. A lot of people did. I did not. Um, and a lot of smart people, people I respect to the nth degree, thought she was magnificent. Um and uh, they always go to the thing, well, she's not supposed to be a very good singer. You know, I think Hal Prince made a mistake here uh, in directing the show. And boy, is that um, uh, quite a, a statement to make. Uh, little old me saying that about Hal Prince. But, you know, if that's the case, what I think he should have done was have the people in the cabaret, the, the patrons, the customers, look at each other and like saying, boy, I don't think she's good. You know, squinting their eyes and all that. Because you, you just assume that she's going to come out and she's going 
going to be good. Uh, we're just conditioned to that. So many um, movie musicals especially have numbers where people come out and, and entertain. And we're, we just naturally assume they're, they're wonderful singers. So if Sally Bowles isn't supposed to be that hot, I think we needed some indication of that. But anyway, Anita Gillette uh, certainly was magnificent in this. And what's, uh, you know, you always hear the expression, the years melted away, that cliche. These years just simply disappeared as if they had never invaded her face, body, or pipes. I mean, that's what was so magnificent about it. By the way, um, a couple of things about Don't Tell Mama. For one thing, it inspired a nightclub um, that uh, (laughs) was eight blocks away. And, you know, suddenly that has been around for 35 years. And isn't that wonderful that Don't Tell Mama on 46th Street, where a lot of people break in their acts, do their acts, um, very important stepping tones to success in the cabaret world and frankly one of the few cabaret spaces we have left um, was certainly inspired by that song and you know I didn't even notice this as much as I've heard um, uh, the cast album of cabaret I was in the third audience ever to see cabaret um, back in its Boston tryout it never even occurred to me that what Don't Tell Mama is really is a Charleston, uh, that specific type of song. And once again, I love it when um, composers are able to recreate the era in which um, the song is supposed to be. Because <laughs> uh, Cabaret takes place in 1929 when it starts. And so that's the era of the Charleston. So it was really great of John Cantor to write a Charleston uh, time appropriate, because certainly we hear songs uh, in many musicals today that the music doesn't sound remotely anything like the time period. And so I'm really glad that uh, John Cantor is the type of composer who knows that he should write for the time period. So I thought that was um, very valuable as well. Yeah. uh, By the way, uh, Michael, didn't you assume when he said <laughs> Stephen Bogardus is going to sing a song from Company, you were going to hear Being Alive? I certainly did. I mean, and I was very glad to hear uh, a different song. Not Nothing against Being Alive, but we hear it a lot. And to mm. choose Someone is Waiting, which is rarely sung in situations like this, was really a terrific idea. Yeah. And, uh, and Bogardus really sang it very well. But another thing occurred to me while listening to the song. And that is the fact that when you think of it in a way, uh, this is a list song uh, mm. because he mentioned Sarah, Susan, Jenny, Amy, Joanne, you know, all this kind of. However, m- uh, many list songs like You Are the Top or Just Leave Everything to Me are like stream of consciousness and, to be perfectly frank, easy to write. Uh, um, no song is easy to write, but of all the songs, list songs are the easiest to write however this is not a list song in the sense that things rhyme uh the names rhyme he did he didn't use uh the names to rhyme anything i don't think sondheim didn't and again this is a list song with a definite point it's not just oh we're amused to hear these um cultural references this was a case where bobby wanted an amalgam of these five women in his dream girl. You know, so again, once again, Sondheim takes a conventional Broadway uh, standard uh, issue type of song, uh, the list song, and embellishes it. He doesn't just make one, because really, wouldn't it have been easy to say, you know, um, I met a woman named blah, 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 and then I met a woman named blah, 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 and have it rhyme. You know, he could have done that, but he's so far above that, that um, this list song really makes a point. So, uh again, going back to this era really uh, showed uh, that well, you know, we always hear that the golden age of the Broadway musical is between 1943 and 1964 with Fiddler. That's the conventional uh, standard thing. But Ron Fassler certainly showed us that there were a few good years left in uh, the golden age of the Broadway musical. All right. I have a lot of things to say here. <laughs> <laughs> you there, James? No, no. Were you there at, uh, at, at Ron's show? Uh, no, I was not. I was not at yeah. Ron's show. Uh, I didn't see you. Yeah. But um, – no, but uh, I've been just taking in everything that you have, you guys are saying, and I'm making notes here. Uh, a bunch of things for listeners to go check out our show page because we have a lot of links here. So first thing we're going to talk about, Michael Levine, L- Levine, 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 Levine. Levine. Yeah, but it's Levine. with an A. Levine. L a v i n e. So. There is an incredible podcast that all listeners should check out if you haven't heard already called Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Oh, yeah. yeah. And number 85 is Michael Levine. Mm-hmm. I, keep, I keep on saying Levine. It's stuck in my head, but it's Levine. 
Um, and that is an awesome interview with him. And I've linked to that in the show notes. So if you want to check out uh, an interview with him, uh, check out our show notes as a link directly to that podcast. Um, back in October 2015, we talked with Lee Adams, and I've linked to that as well, and that uh, Michael referenced that. Uh, and then uh, also back in December 2013, we talked with Anita Gillette and sound of, uh, talked about the Sound of Music, but there's another great interview there with Anita if you want to go back and listen to that. Uh, and you were talking about um, uh, company, and uh, it reminded me of, uh, uh, of NPR uh, Terry Gross's Fresh Air, and she interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, last year, and I linked to that as well because Lynn talks about um, not getting married today as being one of the first rap songs on Broadway. <laughs> uh, and it, and Lynn and Terry get very deep into a discussion of Sondheim and company and things like that. And it was very interesting, and you wouldn't expect that – uh, just by seeing the title of Lin-Manuel being interviewed on Fresh Air. But uh, it was great, and I encourage everybody. And I have all those things linked in the uh, show notes at broadwayradio.com so that uh, you can find those, th- those things very quickly if you wanted to. By the way, uh, I'm, I'm reading in several sources that the f- movie Lady Bird has – crazy scores on Rotten Tomatoes. I believe I read that yeah. it is, according to the score, it is the most popular film in the history of Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, compilation of reviews and, and the scores that are given. And that, of course, um, gives us a fair amount of Sondheim and, and specifically Merrily We Roll Along. So it all comes full circle, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, yes. Speaking of films, The Greatest Showman with uh, uh, with uh, Hugh Jackman, um, with a score written uh, by Patrick and Paul, exactly, uh, has set a Hollywood record that uh, Matt talked about on Today on Broadway, where the second week far outperformed yeah, the first, the first. week. In, this is good word of mouth. Because mm-hmm. of such great word of mouth. And so I think that there's great talk that Lady Bird is going to be a, um, a, a Oscar contender and that The Greatest Showman is a sleeper hit as well. So these are uh, good things for folks who are uh, looking to get out of the cold and into a theater to watch uh, watch there as well. So uh, Greatest Showman and Lady Bird will put links to those things in the show notes as well. All right, so before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you or Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone and your Android device. Uh, we are played on Amazon's Tune. Well, I don't know if it's Amazon's TuneIn, but you can listen to TuneIn on on an Amazon Echo. Um, we are played. Uh, where's my list of things where we're played? We're played on Google Play. We're played on TuneIn. We're played on our Heart Radio. We're played anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. And contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com on the show page as well as those uh, links that we just talked about a minute ago. So, Peter, tell us about the answer for last week's trivia. Well, I asked, what do these songs have in common? And to be fair, I went from the 30s to uh, the beginning of our new century. So the songs were You're the Top, Anything Goes from the 30s, Do It the Hard Way, Pal Joey from the 40s, It's a Perfect Relationship, Bells Are Ringing from the 50s, Lila Tremaine, Fade Out, Fade In from the 60s, I Don't Need Anything But You, Annie from the 70s, Just Go to the Movies, A Day in Hollywood from the 80s, The American Dream, Miss Saigon in the 90s, and A Moment with You, Saturday Night, which though it was written in the 50s, wasn't produced until uh, the turn of our new century. So the answer was that all of these songs mentioned Fred Astaire. You're the top in Anything Goes, says you're the nimble tread on the feet of Fred Astaire. Do it the hard way? Fred Astaire once worked so hard he often lost his breath. It's a perfect relationship? Can he dance like Fred Astaire? 
Lila Tremaine, Fred Astaire would have wound up playing bits with his real name, Fred Austerlitz. I don't need anything but you, like Fred and Adele, they're floating on air now. To be fair, they don't mention Astaire, but we do know who they are because Fred and Adele were a brother and sister team before she uh, married uh, extraordinarily well and then um, dropped out of the business. Um, a day in Hollywood, uh, see Fred Astaire step it in style, the American dream on stage, Fred Astaire, and a moment with you from Saturday night. It took Fred Astaire years to learn to tap. Okay, Dead Popple was the first to get it, followed by Robert Lobiando, and that was it. So, this week's question. In her first book musical on Broadway, she played two distinctly different characters. In her last book musical on Broadway, she played four distinctly different characters. Who is she? The name of the two shows and the name of the six characters in search of an answer. Mm. All right. If you have uh, an answer for this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Another bad about you. All they say is trust in what is written. Wars are made, and somehow that is wisdom. Thought is suspect, and money is their idol. And nothing is okay unless it's scripted in their Bible. But I know there's so much more to find just in looking through myself. And not at them Still I know to trust my own true mind And to say there's a way through this On I go To wonder and to learning Name the stars and know they're dark returning I'm calling to know the world's true yearning hunger that a child feels for everything they're shown you watch me just watch me i'm calling and one day all will know you watch me just watch me i'm calling i'm calling one day Passus dum condret urbem.